Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Natalie Nixon. And you can see from behind Natalie, The Creativity Leap is her book. And Natalie, give us a little bit about your consulting practice and how you got there. And then I'd like you to tell us about your book. Sure. Well, Mark, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining. Uh, in my business, uh, Figure Eight Thinking, I advise leaders and executive teams on achieving transformative business results by applying creativity and foresight. In my view, creativity is not an addendum or an afterthought. There's a solid bullet line that we can draw from creativity to business impact. And I've built out my business by really leveraging um, an incredibly loopy background. I have a background in anthropology and fashion, and I spent 16 years as a professor. And my background in anthropology, cultural anthropology, equipped me with what I like to call the worm's eye view of society. It has trained me to ask new, different, and compelling questions to make sense of problems. And um, I look at other social sciences like economics and poli-sci and sociology as giving us the bird's eye view of society. And both are important. And um, when you have both the quant and the qual in conjunction, it's um, even better. My work in fashion uh, was as an entrepreneurial hat designer. And then I worked a few years in global fashion sourcing. I lived and worked in Sri Lanka and Portugal and traveled throughout Asia, making bras and panties for Victoria's Secret. And my experience in fashion has really helped me to appreciate uh, having a financial acumen, the role of logistics in supply chain management and technology, as well as the value of understanding beauty and desire and aesthetics and building consumer insight. So I incorporate all of that work in, my, in, my, in the way I approach strategy for my clients. So what made you write this book? A couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a global keynote speaker. And over the past four, two years, especially, after I would give a talk around the topics in the Creativity Leap, people would come up to me very complimentary and they would ask me, where can I read more about this? And I blog for Inc. And that's one place I could direct them. But I quickly realized I needed a common holding place for my intellectual property. So this is a way that I have productized my intellectual capital. The other reason I decided to write the book is in my consulting work with especially on the corporate side, helping a lot of organizations build cultures of innovation, I began to have this creeping sensation that we were going about it the wrong way. Um, I often experience, and you all may as well, that when we talk about innovation, we throw the word around quite a bit and we end up meaning slightly different things. And so that was a challenge. We needed kind of a lingua franca and the way we think about innovation. And also, 
I believed we were starting in the wrong place. We actually should not be starting with innovation. We needed to pause, take a few steps back and start with creativity. The challenge then, of course, is that every not everyone, I, I quickly learned, especially in corporate uh, business environments, people don't really understand creativity. They lob it into the field of the arts or design, and they'll use language like, I'm not a creative type, or the creatives will handle that. And so the challenge with that sort of mindset is that we end up ghettoizing creativity in the arts. And that's not fair to artists, and it's not beneficial to our society at large. So then my, my challenge became, how do I come up with a simple accessible way to explain creativity that also kind of democratizes it and helps everyone understand that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. It's just a matter of how you're exercising it. And right now we're especially seeing in this, what I call a triple pandemic, we're seeing how essential creativity and the application of creativity is. Uh, and that's so true. I, when I read your book, I thought of how people say either entrepreneurs are born or they're not but a lot of people can be taught to become entrepreneurs. And you're uh, saying in your book that people can be taught with the right process and discipline to be creative. So in the book, you write about a creative creativity competency. Explain that. Yeah, and to segue into creativity competency, I'll just say, um, it's my point of view is almost that we um, need to return back to ourselves any of you who have children, if you reflect back on when you were a child, we actually were super creative, right? And um, somehow through the process of, of, of our educational system and sometimes our organizational cultures, that creativity gets drummed out of us. We're, we're told to err on the side of being solutions oriented versus process oriented. And what comes with that is um, a negligence in exercising that capacity. So it's always in us. It's just a matter of exercising it. So that creative competency is really about being better at toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So that's how I define creativity. It's toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And we can get better at it by applying the three eyes, which there's another part of my creativity framework. And the three eyes are inquiry, improvisation and intuition. Um, wonder is about awe and audacity and asking humongous, big blue sky, what if questions. It's also about pausing. So the wonder is something that we often uh, mystify among artists, right? And we uh, that that's kind of why we end up siloing uh, creativity in the arts. Creativity is a means to becoming an incredible artist. Creativity is the means to becoming an incredible engineer, entrepreneur, teacher, plumber, etc. Rigor is about discipline. It's about skill development. It's about time on task. It's about very heads down work. It's often really solitary and not too sexy. And it was important for me to include this element of creativity in the definition as well, because I want people to have clarity that creativity is not doing whatever you feel like. It's not pulling something randomly out of your armpit, as I like to say. Uh, there are rules, there's, there's some minimal structure and we need the structure so that we know what to push up against. So that creativity competency comes over time as we learn to toggle between the wonder and the rigor. And we, as I said, we do that through exercising 
better curiosity, improvising more, and using our intuition to act on decisions. So is there a profile of creative types? I don't believe so. I mean, there, there might be a profile of, of attributes and characteristics that people who are super creative tend to exercise, and that, that would come back to this definition. I, you know, I interviewed over 50 people for the Creativity Leap. They came from the fields of law, uh, interviewed folks at NASA in Pasadena, California at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, I interviewed a perfumier from International Flavors and Fragrances. I interviewed our family plumber, farmers, uh, consultants from Deloitte and PricewaterhouseCoopers. And um, I interviewed this wide range of people to really kind of confirm or disaffirm, disavow me of my hypothesis, which is that creativity is this ability to toggle between wonder and rigor. And what I learned from these conversations was that the, the most innovative leaders, the, the leaders who, who really deliver the greatest impact are not afraid to lead with questions, to ask questions of themselves, to create an environment in their organizations and their companies where they welcome curiosity and questions. And they understand that that is the beginning of exploration and experimentation. I was really influenced by the work of Warren Berger, who is the author of A More Beautiful Question. And he talks about how asking questions is a way of thinking. Um, these the, the, these uh, creative types, I don't like to use that word, but the, the, the leaders and, and individuals who I interviewed who exhibit creativity also get more comfortable at improvising. And, and being improvisational is really about being adaptive. It's about saying yes and, and it's about embracing the build and experimentation rather than saying yes, but we tried that seven years ago and it was a flop, right? They just kind of shut down the conversation. Uh, people who are really good at improvising don't do that. Um, and then intuition, I recall interviewing the CEO of Vectorworks, which is a software company. Uh, this is Biblat Sarkar, who's a PhD in electrical engineering. And I was a little shy to ask him about what his thoughts were around intuition. I thought he'd laugh me out the room. And he actually started, you know, in a really excited manner, started sharing ways that he consistently listens to and acts on his intuition. Well, it's interesting. You interviewed plumbers, lawyers, and everything. And don't we always say if we get a really smart lawyer or a very creative plumber that they find a solution to things because they are, have creative minds and, and they've adapted them. Absolutely. And I would think that all the travel that you've done in your life made you more inquisitive and uh, more creative because you've seen so many different things. Do you think travel is really important for people? To develop their creativity? Yes, absolutely. When we travel, we are plucked out of our norm and we are required to become much more comfortable with ambiguity. We're required to ask naive questions and to not need to be the expert in the room. We also get to be a little bit more of a fly on the wall. I mean, how many of you have experienced traveling to a different country, even a different city in the United States. And, uh, you know, you have a coffee and a cafe on the sidewalk cafe. You can just people watch for an hour. So it's quite liberating and it, and it shifts your perspective. It builds out those three eyes of curiosity, inquiry, being more improvisational 
and needing to be intuitive. You know, my, my husband and I spent some time in Florence, Italy a few years ago and, and did a, a couple of days in, um, in Venice. And, you know, Venice is, is a, is a incredibly interesting ancient city, uh, full of wandering paths and, and streets and, and alleys and, and, and canals. And it, it was just, it was just fun getting lost constantly and wandering. That's one of those experiences that really triggers the wonder and helps us to revisit our, the, our, our normal routine lives in, in very fresh ways. I, I think that uh, for people, if you're staying in the same place all the time, you only see everything from one direction. And the fact that you do a lot of traveling and I do a lot of traveling, you come up with ideas. I mean, Starbucks, uh, that whole idea was based on the fact that he went over to Italy and experienced different cafes and he brought it back and the actual, you know, he, uh, uh, Schultz, he yes. actually um, bought, became a director of marketing at Starbucks and they didn't want to do it. And so he ended up starting his own thing and then buying the chain. But if he had not done that traveling, he would never would have come up with the concept and nobody outside of Seattle would have ever heard of Starbucks. Yeah, and let me just build on this example of Starbucks. That's also a great example of how, you know, one of the chapters in the Creativity Leap uh, points out that there's really nothing new under the sun. It's all about the remix. And so much of creativity is about different juxtapositions and recombinations of things that are done. So, you know, sometimes it's those incremental tweaks that lead to an exponential shift in the marketplace. So that was something that he borrowed from, uh, kind of copy, not pasted, but copied and, and then tweaked and how it was gonna fit in the American context. Can you talk more about uh, the comment on solutions-oriented versus process-oriented? What do you mean by that and give an example? Sure. So um, I'll give an example from my, my career in academia. Um, the last six years of being a professor, I um, launched the Strategic Design MBA program at Philadelphia University. And it was a very different type of executive MBA program where design thinking was integrated into the ways that working professionals were learning strategy, leadership, financial operations, and branding. And one of our stuff goals in this program was to creatively disrupt graduate business education. And any of you who have an MBA are probably, probably very much aware that one of the things you're trained to do in traditional MBA programs is to have the solution yesterday, right? You're always given these case studies that you know, you're the EVP or global manager of XYZ business and something's go, gone wrong and you know, what's the answer? The reality in life is that life is a lot more gray um, and we all have to survive in VUCA environments, environments that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And while plans may offer kind of a faux comfort in the reality of a hot mess of a situation that most businesses find themselves on and, and periodically, um, a linear Gantt chart is not going to get you there. So having an orientation to have a singular solution, the answer. I mean, you think about how we're educated, we're, we go through standardized testing, 
where you have to fill in the dot, go out the lines. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a solutions orientation. Having a process orientation means that you are much more open to multiple possible future scenarios, which gives you a bit more wiggle room to in the moment improvisationally adapt. This is actually the mindset and the paradigm that um, military leadership trains on uh, to have multiple possible future scenarios that they can anticipate rather than a singular laser focus on the solution. It really doesn't make sense in the lives that most of us lead. So you mentioned you have an anthropology degree and you talked about that in the beginning. Why did you get it and did it affect your creativity? Absolutely. I got a degree. So I actually have a double degree from Vassar in anthropology and Africana studies. And I, I posted a few months ago how it only this year occurred to me that my studying Africana studies. So Africana studies is a multidisciplinary major where you're learning about people of African descent in the diaspora. So in the continent of Africa and the Caribbean and Europe and the Americas through the lenses of literature and sociology and philosophy and economics. And I only recently realized retrospectively that studying Africana studies was really my first foray into systems thinking and systems design. Because we were understanding a group of people as part of a larger system and part of a larger network. And one of the things you understand if you, if you start doing work in systems design is that one change and shift in the system and one node in the network over here is gonna have a cascading effect and ramifications elsewhere. So that was an incredibly valuable mindset and skill set that I cultivated in college studying that, studying African studies. Cultural anthropology, frankly, and you can you, you kind of see this as a pattern of mine. Um, first of all, I, even the fact that I had a double major, um, I'm incredibly indecisive. And one of the things I loved about cultural anthropology was the ability to explore so many different types of people different from me. I ended up actually using the techniques of cultural anthropology to, to, to examine my own culture. Um, my undergraduate thesis was on black women's hair culture, which is a, a very interesting uh, dynamic topic. Um, but cultural anthropology, because it equipped me with question asking, ways to frame questions, ways to be self-reflexive on the way I think about the way I'm thinking on a very metacognitive level, um, really sparked creativity because if we go back to the way I'm defining creativity, toggling between wonder and rigor, I constantly received amazement about understanding um, kind of the mundane rituals of you know the uh, American family. To I, you know, my campus job was um, I worked for a professor who was a linguist. I worked for him for three years. Um, and he studied a group of indigenous people in South America, and um, all of his transcripts were from their language into Spanish, and I, and I knew Spanish. So my campus job was to translate from the Spanish into the English. It was, it was, it was a great job. Um, and uh, it, you know, it was just this amazement of people living in the world contemporaneously who have such a different worldview. And so that spark has, has stayed alive in me. And, um, you know, I use, I use anthropology every single day in my work as a strategist. 
So my my next question is, and, and, and I think a lot of people um, wonder about this in business. You know, the Fortune 500, since it started, I think there's like two members left uh, of the Fortune 500. What did you learn about why large companies fail? Mm. They stop being creative and innovative. Why? Well, um, I don't know that I have the answer for why. I think it's, I think it's complex. I do think scale has something to do with it. I, I, I think in any organization, people need to feel seen and heard. And there, unless leadership is intentional about that, about ensuring that the human is allowed to show up to work, as I like to say, that uh, ensures that we don't show up to work in drag, that you don't just stop at Natalie's greatest hits or the best of, but you really are curious about who I am as a person and I'm invited to contribute my, my full self, that actually increases productivity. And that we see that in educational environments as well. Um, we talk about the, the, the perils of overcrowded classrooms when student-teacher ratios get over a certain tipping point. It goes back to that principle of being seen, being heard, and having that high touch principle. So there are, there, are, there are lots of cool ways that as companies get larger, they can try to ensure that there is a sense of connection um, and that the humanness of, of people is really valued. So I think that's, that's one of the, the big reasons it's about scale. And one of the things larger corporations try to do is they try to, to especially if they started as a startup themselves, they try to capture that's Jenny Sequa by acquiring smaller, scrappy startups. And it's, it's you know, the, the, the verdict's still out about, you know, sometimes those smaller, scrappy startups, they, they lose their, their- um, Scrappiness. Their scrappiness, right? Because of, the, of this new environment yeah. that, that they're driven. So, so it's really about leadership being very intentional and, and fundamentally not forgetting that organizations are organisms. And they're organisms because they're made up of people, of humans. You know, when I was going back to college, I remember I took a sociology 101 course and we had to read a book called The Organization Man. It's a classic book in sociology by William White. And at the time, and I think in the late 50s, early 60s, when that book came out, people were just marveling at how because of... Um, you know, the advent of mass production and then urbanization and, you know, and people moving into working in companies and, and out of factories, um, there's kind of this cog in the wheel type of, of syndrome that, that was evolving and happening and, and, and the, the, the opportunities and challenges with that. So now we're at a, we're at a, we're at a shift. I, I really think right now during this COVID-19 quarantine, in an interesting way, we have come back to um, a place where we were centuries ago, which is that back in the times when we had an agricultural economy, you would wake up in the morning, you'd do your ablutions, you'd eat, you'd step over your threshold, and you were at work. And now, similarly, we wake up in the morning, we do our ablutions, we eat, we step over our threshold, and we're at work. So is it, so is it, is it actually an opportunity for us to redesign the way that we work? Uh, what do you do to put yourself in the creativity zone and how and how the flow state plays in a role in creativity? Um, I do a lot of different things. For me, one of the things I do to practice wonder is I take regular daydream breaks uh, during the day. 
And sometimes I can only afford a 90 second break. Sometimes it's five minutes. Uh, I, I mentioned yesterday, it was such a beautiful fall day and I found 30 minutes where I was able to take a walk. I'm in Philly and, and, and Philly is awesome because we have 10X the amount of green space at Central Park in New York and wherever you are in Philadelphia, whether you're in the hood or in a Tony neighborhood, you've access to the woods and trails. So I was able just to hop in the woods and, and take a take a pause like that. So that's one way to do it is, and you have to, again, using this word intentional, you have to be really intentional about doing that. Um, the way I practice rigor is sometimes I do rigor sprints. And I, um, especially when I was writing the book, The Creativity Leap, I had to, again, use my timer, time is a constraint for creativity. Um, and I would just turn off all notifications on my phone, on my laptop, um, complete silence. And my sprint might be for 30 minutes, sometimes for 20 minutes to just write whatever the, the thing is that you need to get done. You need to put yourself in that kind of cocooned space. And at the end, in my book, at the end of each chapter, I actually offer a creativity leap tip for the individual and for the organization. Um, and I, even before I wrote the book, I, I developed this card game called the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck. And it's a series of question prompts to do just what you're asking, to help people identify ways and teams to identify ways that they can incorporate more wonder and more rigor into their practice to solve problems. Most projects solve problems or have a goal, a solution at the outset, such as building a building. The creative process is addressing unforeseen events. How in this example would the result or solution change from its original intent? Not sure I understand the question, but I, I would just say when you don't know, so a couple things. I, I was on a call with one of my, my coaching clients. I, I, have a, I have a coaching practice as well. And they were talking about just feeling challenged um, with knowing where, where to start. And so there were two responses I gave, I gave for that because th this, is, this question is really about becoming much more comfortable with the ambiguity and the discomfort of not knowing. So, so when we don't know what to do, and this actually comes from my mom, uh, she used to tell us, when you don't know what to do yet, don't do anything yet. And she would remind us, her reasoning behind that is because sometimes we get so self-consumed about our problem, the challenge that we're trying to solve, and we forget, and we only get to this by pausing and being still, her point was that there are all these other variables and factors in motion around us that we have no idea about. And um, the, the, we can intuit eventually what to do. The other advice I, I gave to this client was to um, help her become more comfortable with this ambiguity. It's um, first accepting the feeling, and secondly, it's about making incremental small steps towards clarification. It's about you know groping in the dark, feeling like, oh, this is a doorway. Let me just kind of go through this doorway. And then, ah, there's a dim bit of light here. Let me go towards that light, right? My husband, John, and I, we have an expression we call the law of momentum. Keep going through the door that's open. But what's significant here is after you pause, after you're still you need to start taking a step forward. You can't have analysis paralysis. You cannot let perfection be the enemy of good. You really have to take on a prototyping mindset and approach. Prototypes are ugly, rough draft mock-ups of an idea. They're not perfect. 
They're not great yet. The whole purpose of a prototype is to start to get feedback. You're collecting signals about which way I might go next. Um, one of the, 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 the tools and techniques I, I use quite a bit in um, my coaching practice is I advise clients to go on a listening tour. Um, this is something I myself did when after 16 years as an academic, I realized I wanted to make a shift. And going on a listening tour and getting advice, asking for help requires some humility. And it requires you to be a little bit more curious to understand what it is that I, what, what may I learn from someone who the expression is, is coming back from where I'm headed. What, it, what perspective might I glean? And it also helps you to ask new and different questions to yourself. I hope, I hope that was a helpful answer to the question. I don't think I really understood the question. I, I, I think what he was saying here when I'm looking at this question is that you're, you're building a building and then, and that's, you know, let's say for instance, you're, you, you've built this headquarters for this uh, company and now because of COVID, things have changed and how you adapt that change. So maybe you started out with a budget of $100 million to build the coolest thing, but because of COVID and you've lost money and you still wanna build it, now you've got to reimagine what this is. And now you only have 50 million to work with. So how do you use uh, the creativity uh, to make those changes in order to, to uh to come with that final solution that you're ultimately looking for. Well, I for. think it's a version of what I've already said. You, you do need humility to stop bulldozing your way through. You have to pause. You have to get additional and new intel, right? The landscape has shifted. It's not, it, we're not going back to the same needs. My husband, John, is an attorney in, in Center City and already early on, they started reevaluating the amount of real estate that they have, right? It's not necessarily the end of the world. It does mean a different world. And so one of the things that this curiosity piece requires is that you get out of the building and you start to gather intelligence, ask questions from maybe not from your usual suspects, right? Go to unusual suspects, go to people. So, so one of, one of the, the, the principles of design thinking that I really love is something called lateral thinking. And it's about what we can learn from sectors that are adjacent to us or that are really far removed from us in terms of how they are problem solving. So if you're in the construction architecture business, look to see what people are doing in the fitness space. They're also having similar issues or what the people are doing in the restaurant space, right? For example, um, there's a there's a small uh, woman-owned black woman-owned business here in Philadelphia called Dance Fit. Da you know, it's, it's an it's an exercise studio, high touch, brick and mortar model, and they quickly pivoted to figuring out how to deliver value in this digital landscape. And they were clumsy in, in different stages, but they have actually extended the community community that they built. So part of the, the, the intel that, that this person might collect is a different, totally different market who would be interested in this real estate space or a different um, use of the real estate space. But what's most important is to pause and to reevaluate, which is incredibly terrifying to do because it may mean that you're wrong, right? And if we're wrong, we have to start over again. Um, but finding advisors, allies, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. One, uh, 
and I'll just, and I'll, I'll, we've got to another question, but um, a book that was incredibly helpful to me is um, a book by Amanda Palmer called The Art of Asking. And I read that book when I was transitioning out of academia into becoming a full-time entrepreneur. Amanda Palmer could not be more different from me. She's a punk rocker. She's part, she was part of a, of a duo uh, punk band called the Dresden Dolls. She was a performance ar artist on, on, um, at, at um, Harvard Square in Cambridge. Um, she would stand out all day as a busker, you know, completely painted in white and asking for money. And she was one of the first successful uh, people to do a Kickstarter campaign. She was one of the first Kickstarter campaigns to, to break over a million dollars. Um, she got her dream of, of getting signed on by a label and then realized she didn't want to do that, divorced herself from her label. Um, once Ted found that she was um, so successful as a Kickstarter campaigner, they invited her to do a TED Talk. And what she talks about is how terrified she was. Here she was always asking, literally asking strangers for pennies and nickels and quarters and dollars. And all of a sudden she was thrust in to a, a digital domain to ask for money through Kickstarter, to then tell her story through TED. Um, and she writes about how she learned to optimize a very foreign space, the digital media landscape, to ask for help. And the reason I'm sharing that is that embedded in that question is, from my, in my view, uh, when we need to pivot, um, we one of the things that helps us to shift our perspective and to be able to zoom out is when we can get the, the, the insights from people who would look at the same challenge totally in a totally different way from us. So when you have an innovative idea, do you write it down, put it in your computer? How do you make sure you don't lose the idea? I love Evernote. I do too. I literally have um, a folder in Evernote that the, the title is write this down, exclamation mark. That's the name of the folder. And so as things, as ideas occur to me, I um, write them down. I also love an, a great app called Otter, O-T-T-E-R, and it's a voice transcription app. Uh, Evernote also has a voice transcription function, but it's a great way as I'm writing often for me to just kind of get the thoughts out, do a download, and it does a, a really awesome transcription. Um, I'm a big proponent of doodling. Doodling has nothing to do with your ability to draw, but it has everything to do with your capacity for abstract, complex thinking. And so the way you get better at doodling is to doodle. So if you can draw a line, a stick figure, a triangle, a circle, a Venn diagram, you got this. And it's often it often helps me to really map out what I'm thinking about. I also like mind maps. So I use a lot of different techniques to try to make sense of ideas that are starting to emerge. So let's talk about something in your book that I, I, I read here. You mentioned the survey by Steelcase Furniture that essentially said younger people embrace creativity more than older people. And I wondered why, because this kind of mirrors older companies with older managers versus younger companies with young founders. Yeah, and actually the statistic was, it was looking at a breakdown of millennials versus boomers. And I think it was only like a 10 point spread in terms of how each was embracing creativity. It wasn't like a 25 point percentage point difference. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think millennials, if we can lump people together, centennials certainly as well. 
um, they've just come of age in a time where they are they are questioning, uh, and they're they they are, have been kind of given the gratis in space to question status quo. And again, I go back to the three eyes: inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. I wrote that curiosity is the precursor to empathy. Curiosity is everything because it it really it builds a confidence in us to. Um, be much more exploratory. So I think that is one of the, the, the reasons why that still case study found that. Why are some companies really creative and others are not? Like how can a leader instill that in, in their people? Well, I do think it starts with the leadership. Um, do you have a permission slip culture? What's your recruiting process like? What's your interviewing process like? Do you mix it up? Do you hire for creativity? Do you hire for kind of the same sorts of people who make you feel comfortable because they look like you, they went to the same sorts of schools as you did? It's only through cognitive diversity, diversity of skill sets, experiences that you will actually build a culture of creativity. One of the people I interviewed for the Creativity Leap is Randy Swearer, who is the Vice President of Learning Features at Autodesk in San Francisco. And he talked about this really cool word I learned from him, orthogonal thinking, which is a type of cognitive diversity. And so one of the things that they do is they intentionally interrupt themselves by having, they, they, they have hired um, a former AFL CIO union leader, a PhD in physics, um, a, a former military leader to help them look at the same problems from a totally different perspective. The other thing that they do is they regularly hold councils, which are these convenings that invite thought leaders and subject matter experts from a range of sectors to look at a problem they're examining from all sorts of perspectives. So having the ability to interrupt yourself is a great technique to build creativity in an organization. Um, another example, I went out to Pasadena, California and I visited the studio at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. And the studio, I call it an internal provocateur. It's a group of social scientists, artists, and designers embedded at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab that basically act as a translator for all the research that the astrophysicists and scientists are doing for unmanned aircraft so that it will make sense for folks like me, uh, the woman, the man on the street. And so these are just a few examples of things that you can design into your organization to make sure that you hire for creativity, you sustain it, and you cultivate it. What's a good process for brainstorming that isn't staged and comes off as authentic? Because people hire people and they, they all kind of do the same crap all the time. So what can you do to make sure that people are brainstorming, but it does come across as real, not staged and, and, and put together? Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of, of brainstorming sessions where there's a person standing in front right. of a group and they say, okay, give me your best ideas. The reason why that's problematic is number one, um, it really stunts the inclusion of people who are more introverted. So the loud mouths, the chatty Cathy's, the bossy pants tend to dominate. Also, if there's any sort of status dynamic in the room, um, people who are more junior, not as tenured, uh, maybe a little bit more quiet. So something that I often do is something called quiet storming. And it basically is a type of brainstorming that allows people to gather their thoughts quietly first and then share it out in smaller groups and then the larger group. Uh, what is the wonder rigor model? You talk about that in the book. What is that? 
Um, one, the wonder rigor model is the way that I um, make sense of creativity. So wonder, as I mentioned, is about awe and audacity and asking big what if questions. Um, it's about pausing. Uh, rigor is about time on task and, and discipline and deep skill development. The wonder rigor model puts all of that together and it's a visual to help people understand this toggling between the two in order to be more creative. Uh, a lot of uh, universities, they spend a lot of time, professors, I taught 17 years like you did, uh, spend a lot of time on quizzes and tests, but not how to think through problems or to come up with better options. Do you think this should change? You know, there's a lot of like, oh, we, got, we have to give them quizzes, we have to give them tests. Uh, and then they're just spitting back out to you what they, what they read or you told them in a lecture. How do you get your folks to be more creative? Um, so I, I think, uh, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, you know, I think there, and again, this is kind of the rigor piece. All, if we go back to the assumption that artists are the holders and keepers of creativity, any artist, any great artist, whether you're talking about Picasso or Miles Davis or Twyla Tharp or Judith Jamison um, or Joe Myers Brown um, are very clear that the fundamentals are essential. You must understand them and know them and excel in them. The reason why you must know them is so that you can break from them, is so that you can push against them. So I'm not an advocate of teaching to the test, but I am an advocate of understanding fundamentals for whatever your practice is. If the end, if the end in sight is to help students fall in love with process. And one of the ways um, that can happen in an educational environment is by incorporating more of the studio model of learning. So for example, when I was a professor, I was an associate professor at Philadelphia University, now Thomas Jefferson University. When I created the strategic design MBA program, all of those executive business school classes were framed as studios. We didn't have any auditorium seating, sage on stage type teaching. Um, and we were really intentional about that. And what happened was that a minority of the time was spent hearing content that was important to level set. The majority of the time people were on their feet, they were working on whiteboards, they were learning as much from each other as they were from the subject matter expert in the room. So that studio model we find in dance, we find it in music, we find it in art. And what often starts to happen is that the student is, is becoming much more observant about how their peers in the class are making sense of the material. They're asking them questions. And that's, that is something that we can start to experiment with in, in the school setting. Your dad was a big jazz fan and that impacted you because you like to sit there and listen to jazz with your father. You write uh, about this impact on jazz. Uh, how can jazz and the concept of chaos positively impact creativity and innovation? Well, I've learned that, you know, jazz, music, improvisation, creativity, these are all examples of chaotic systems. Jazz is a chaotic. Creativity is a chaotic. You, you hear that in the way I've defined it as toggling between wonder and rigor in my book, The Creativity Leap. So a chaotic is a word that D. Hawk made up. Hawk was the first president of Visa, the credit card company. And so what I learned actually is that jazz is a lens to understand how, how organizations can be more improvisational, how the how ways that they can be more self-organizing 
emergent and adaptive. And that was the, that was an incredible gift for me growing up in a home where there was a ton of jazz music as an African-American. It's, it's an incredible gift to the United States of America. Uh, jazz is America's unique classical form of music. And so on a personal level, I came full circle in my doctoral studies and applying that heuristic to understand organizations. And if you want to learn more about it, you should definitely check out the work of Frank Barrett. He is a jazz musician. He's also a professor at one of the UC schools. And I, I learned a lot from his from his heuristic in my own work. Can you please share, um, I, I guess, that Republica and their chaotic process to improve creativity? Republique is um, a famous restaurant in Los Angeles, and they also are an example of an organization that's incredibly chaotic. And when I interviewed one of their managers, she was just sharing the ways that they um, every every shift begins with a meeting. That's the order. That's the structure where they play. They have games. They um, ask really interesting, provocative questions of each other. Um, and then they go through the evening and the special guests, what's on the menu, they hear from the sommelier, they hear from the chef. Um, so the restaurant hospitality industry is actually an incredible industry to learn from in terms of those chaotic systems and processes that they have set up because you have to be so improvisational when you are in the service business because you're, you're interacting with people who are whimsical. They're not predictable and you have to be able to on the spot be able to adapt. Can you uh, talk more about the studio model versus the classroom model and what are the differences? Sure. So the studio model of learning is I, if I can, if I can take the example from dance. Um, so it's much more interactive. Um, it, it doesn't require butts and seats. Um, the instructor is there to give instruction and lead and principles, but you're constantly observing. So if any of you have ever taken an art class, a dance class, these are studio models of learning um, where you're learning by doing. So you're given the concept, you try it, you, you share out about it. And then another important part of the student model is the critique, is the crit. When I was a professor, I taught business students, design students, and engineering students. And business students consistently were the worst at receiving feedback. They would get super defensive. They would start to uh, try to talk over the person giving feedback and start to explain what they were going to do or they had already thought about this. They did not understand the value of that moment of receiving the feedback so that they could improve. Engineering students were a little better, but design students were consistently the best at being able to take that constructive, critical feedback because it's part of the pedagogy and design curriculum. It's built in the studio model. And what it trains people to do is to be able to separate themselves from the work. Because the point at the end of the day is not to show that you're perfect and you have the one right idea. The point is to be able to improve. It's about continual, consistent improvement. Well, I think really smart people fall into the trap of, especially analytical types, that they've thought of every possible way of doing something and the numbers all added up in their mind and now you're telling them the numbers didn't add up and now that requires them to reevaluate and they can't understand 
why would I need to reevaluate this situation where people who are designers know that things are in a constant state of change and require uh, uh, adjustments all the time, and they're more open to taking on new ideas. One of the things I thought was interesting in your book is you talked about forming a tribe in your neighborhood. How do you form a business tribe where everyone doesn't think the same? Isn't that the problem we, where people pick others like themselves because there's a degree of comfort but come up short changing the business? Yeah, I'll answer that question. I just I do want to go back to this point about taking feedback. Designers are not necessarily good at this right away. This is learned behavior. And people can get better at this. It's all about how the learning process is set up. And it also is about understanding physiologically what's happening to us when we get feedback. We actually are triggering the reptilian brain. When we get feedback, there's a reason why our palms get sweaty, our eyes dilate, our heart beats faster. We want to run or we want to attack. And it's because there is a visceral feeling that the tribe is pushing us out. And if the tribe pushes out, pushes us out, we may not survive. So part of getting better at receiving feedback is understanding, okay, this is what's happening to me, right? So I do want to just mention that it's not that designers are better at it. There's tons of designers who, who have an incredibly difficult time of, of receiving feedback, but at least it's built into the way they are learning to be better professionals. Um, the tribe piece that I talked about uh, growing up in Philly in East Mount Airy um, was a lot of fun because, um, you know, especially at this time in our country, we become very tribal. You know, there's a vast value in tribes. Tribes connect us. Tribes help us to be uh, deeply rooted in our identity. But the only way we're going to shift to community is to understand the community is consists of multiple tribes. And that requires really um, visionary and compassionate leadership. So the tribe piece I re refer to in my book uh, was just talking about growing up in the neighborhood um, and, and as children, we, we could kind of sniff out the kids who weren't from around our way, who were from the other side of Stanton Avenue or, or from just three blocks away. Um, and there was comfort in that. Um, and then eventually, you know, you, you, after you sniff each other out, you figure out um, play is going to be a lot more fun if, if we include them. But that was the example I was using. Uh, how do you get tribes, communities, team to work together with just the right amount of friction so one person doesn't dominate and everyone feels that their input is welcome. I think that um, leadership has to be really um, spot on with setting things up properly. I'm a big, um, I refer often to, to um, this term creative abrasion that Jerry Hirschberg uh, made up. Uh, he was the head of design at Nissan International. And whenever his design team was working on a challenge, he would insist that they also included people from finance and HR and manufacturing sales, because he knew that the end result of abrasion and friction is energy. So why not take that abrasion and friction that will come when we have to collaborate and convert it into something positive? According to a biography by Einstein on, uh, by Walter Isaacson, Einstein wasn't liable to share ideas until he was absolutely sure he was correct. Should you encourage employees only to share ideas when they totally have researched it or share it early on? 
I think that it's important to oxygenate ideas because otherwise you fall into the trap of we're only gonna share this out as a big reveal when everything is, according to us, perfect, gilded in gold, and we can set it up on a shelf and it's untouchable to, to critique, right? If you adopt a prototype approach, this idea of build, test, learn, and airing out the idea in multiple stages, there's a couple of things that happen. You'll actually get better buy-in because you're, you're allowing more people to share opinions, to give you feedback, and you will actually end up with a better product, service, or experience because you've listened to the needs of the people who you want to deliver this product or service to. Uh, Michael, last question for you is, how does one use their intuition to lead them to creative and innovative idea that can improve a process or result in a new product? To use their intuition. And I know that might not be a satisfying answer to some people, but that's not what you have to do. Intuition is a muscle, it's a sonar, and the more you ignore it, the flabbier it gets, the dimmer it gets. The more you listen to it and use it, the stronger it gets and the clearer it gets. So when you ignore your intuition uh, in making a decision, you're doing yourself a big disservice. So Is that like gut instinct? Is that the same thing as uh, following your gut? Yes, it is. We actually in our bodies have something called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the only nerve that extends from our cranium down through our heart into our gut. So we are literally hardwired to be intuitive. So when we use language like I'm, I, my gut is telling me, right? My heart is telling me, um, there's a reason for that. And it's V-A-G-U-S, not like- I was gonna say, my father would love hearing that. What is the final advice you would give on people who feel like they're stymied in their creativity that they've kind of hit a wall and especially now, because people are thinking about recreating themselves as COVID hit, they may have lost their jobs, they may have lost their companies. What do you tell them to do right now to kind of restart that engine? Um, the first thing they should do is read my book, The Creativity Leap, as I've already referenced, I give lots of tips and tactics. And the next thing they should do is, is um, really look at the silver lining of this time. If you have, I, I was just on, on, a, on another program this morning and was talking about if you've been furloughed, if you've been laid off, which are really difficult situations to deal with, um, engage in a listening tour, you know, figure out what it is that I don't know about myself. What's the, what's another way to look at this time? Creativity loves constraints. Creativity loves mess. And this is a time of mess. This is the greatest opportunity ever to redesign your relationship with time and to redesign your relationship with yourself. So I see tons of opportunity during this time. Natalie, thank you so much for spending time with all of us today. Best of luck with you and your book. And we hope to see more. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.